the circumstance of the death of an individual never determines their salvation. As far as the gospel is concerned, it is how you lived your life that matters, not how you die. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 8, so if you have your Bible, can you turn please to Romans chapter 8, and we're reading verses 35 to the end of the chapter at verse 39, and you'll find it on page 1758, 1758 of the church Bible. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. Each Sunday morning as I look out at the congregation, whether it's 8.30 or downstairs at 10.45 or here in the main sanctuary, as I look out on a Sunday morning, there is never a single Sunday when I don't see 12, 13, 14 families who have been impacted by suicide over the last five or six years. And my job as a pastor is to teach pastorally. And sometimes around the middle of last year as we moved into the fall, I was very aware of those families. And at that point in my mind, I started to make plans for a Sunday where we would pause and take a Sunday and look at the sensitive, uncomfortable, painful subject of suicide. It is not an easy subject. And there is a part of me that says, I just wish we would skip over it and just continue our normal studies in Romans, but I cannot do that. Because as Christian people, we need to have an understanding of what suicide does, what the Scripture teaches about it, and how do we respond to a family or an individual who's going through the dreadful, awful sadness of suicide in the family. So that's why we're looking at suicide this morning. 2011, I was in my office here at the church working away one afternoon. I was bending over, uh, signing uh, documents on my desk, and I felt the building move. I thought, whoa, what was that? And then I thought, oh, maybe I just imagined that. And I thought, no, I can't have imagined that. And I immediately walked to the window and looked outside, and I was pretty sure a delivery truck had backed up in the parking lot, gone too far, and had bumped against the side of the building. But when I looked out, nothing. And then my secretary said to me, she called through from uh, the room next door, 
did you feel that? And I said, oh yes, I felt, what was that? And in the next, the next five minutes or so, emails started to arrive. Have you seen CNN? Go on Facebook, look at YouTube. And sure enough, it started coming in that there had been a 5.8 earthquake in terms of magnitude in Washington, D.C. Washington Monument was so badly affected, as was the National Cathedral Union Station. The recent repair bill for just the monument and the cathedral was $37 million. 5.8 magnitude is a large earthquake, and we felt it here in South Carolina. Now, when an earthquake hits, if you have been around earthquakes, you will know that the very foundations of society are impacted by an earthquake. Buildings come down, water mains fracture, gas mains fracture, fire and flood. Communications come to a halt as telephone communications come down, as satellite uh, towers no longer able to pick up uh, signals. And an earthquake is a good picture of what happens when a family is impacted by a suicide. All of the things that you thought were foundational and fundamental are shaken. People whom you love are no longer there. They have taken their own life. And then the grief and the bereavement and the sense of loss, the dreadful sadness starts to sink in. Psychologists, counselors talk of suicide as complicated grief because in the midst of all of the grief, you also have the whys. Why did he take his life? Why didn't he just speak to me? Why didn't he reach out for help? Why didn't God intervene and stop this? What is going on? And all of the questions go through people's minds. The grief becomes, at times, more complicated and more complicated. In 2012, the last year, excuse me, 2013, the last year that figures are now available for, over 41,000 Americans took their life. Each year, just under a million people will attempt suicide. It is prevalent in the 18 to 23-year-old males more than anywhere else, and then, sadly, in our seniors who are 75 and above. Today, 22nd of February, 22 veterans will take their life by suicide. 8,000 a year veterans, people who have served their nation, who have come home after completed the call in their life, and more will die at their own hands than have in battle. How do we respond to the awfulness, the hopelessness, the sense of isolation that is running through people's minds when they take their own lives? What is a Christian perspective on suicide? All deaths are tragic, dreadfully sad, but when families go through suicide and I meet with them and sit down with them, and they talk of the sadness and the impact, and they talk of the trauma, and then when I get to know them a little, they'll also begin to share the sense of anger. And my first job is to say to them, 
what you are experiencing, the pain, the grief, the sadness, the anger, the bewilderment, is entirely normal. It's entirely normal. In fact, it would be strange if you were not experiencing it, and you are experiencing it for this reason. You're experiencing it because you loved the person who has just died. You love them. That's why you're grieving at this level. And when families go on to say, why did we not see this coming? Why did we not see the signs? Please remember that when they're asking questions, they're not always looking for answers. They're looking for comfort. Families often get to the point of acceptance. They move beyond the anger and the denial and the dreadful sadness to the point of acceptance. And inevitably, they learn to live with it. They almost never get over it, but they learn to live with it. And in that process, they do begin to ask all of the questions. And one of the questions is, why couldn't we see this coming? And folks, let me be clear and immensely practical for the next two or three minutes. If you suspect that someone you know family member, someone at work, next-door neighbor, if you are seeing signs that they are beginning to withdraw, if they're becoming a little more isolated, less talkative, less engaged each day, no longer answering, responding to emails or phone calls, withdrawing into their bedroom, their world is shrinking. They're spending endless hours sleeping. Please be concerned. Chat with the individual. Ask them what is going on. How can you help? The stats tell us between 85 and 91 percent of people who take their own life at the point of suicide, they are mentally ill, depressed, without hope, in a place so dark, so painful, that all logic, all rationale has gone. And their only answer in their mind is that not only will they, but their entire family and everyone they know will be better off without them. And the only way to stop the pain is to take their own lives. And I can't tell you the number of families I've chatted with, and inevitably they say this, if he had known this was the result, he would never have done this. If he would see the grief of his children and his parents, he would never have done this. And I try very gently and tenderly to say to the families, please understand this. The person who took their own life wasn't thinking they weren't thinking rationally or logically. The pain was too much. That's where they were. The person you knew and loved had changed dramatically and significantly. If you are aware of warning signs, if you are watching on the television this morning, 
if you're listening on the radio or on the internet, and you have had fantasies about taking your own life, if you've worked out a plan mentally for suicide, please call the number at the end of this program, and a pastor will be in touch with you this week, almost immediately. If you're here in the congregation, I will drop anything and everything that's on my schedule this week and come and talk to you. There is hope. There is such a thing as a new beginning. It does not have to end this way. The pain can be eased, and a normal life is entirely possible. Please be in touch. You don't have to live that way. Now, having touched on some of the practical side of things, let me go a step further, because some of you will have asked the question. You will be saying, Richard, if God is good and gracious and merciful, if He cares for us, why didn't He intervene when my daughter or my son or my husband or my grandchild took their own life? Where was God in the midst of this? Why didn't He step in? Hold that thought. It's the thought that I often get asked. And allow me to shed some light on it this way. Part of being human is this, that God in His love and grace gives us, as human individuals, autonomy for our own lives. And with that autonomy comes freedom. And with that freedom comes freedom of choice. If you smoke 60 cigarettes every day for 30 years, there's every possibility that that choice will end up in cancer, lung cancer particularly. If you drive thousands of miles year after year after year, and you are in a car wreck, and you don't have a seatbelt on, that is a direct result of your choice. If you are involved in drug addiction and alcohol abuse or chemical addiction, you've made a choice. The results are inevitable. When someone takes their own life, they make a conscious choice. Sadly, that choice is often colored by mental illness or instability. So, please remember that. But in addition to all that I've said in the last couple of minutes about God allowing us to and be respectful of our choices, please also hear this. When Lazarus died unexpectedly, you have the shortest verse in all of Scripture, two words, Jesus wept. He wept. He wept for the sadness of Mary and Martha. He wept at the loss of his good friend Lazarus. His heart was touched and impacted by that death. So, when God does not intervene and respects our choices, it's not that He doesn't care, it's not that He's distant, it's not that He's far off, but again and again and again the Scriptures teach us this, that He's right there with us, comforting, strengthening, enabling, holding close. That's where He is. And please remember this, that at Christ's death, his Father 
experienced the awful sadness of the loss of his own son. Was he heartbroken? Absolutely. Was he grieved? Yes, of course. And when we lose someone we know and love and care for, he goes through a similar experience of grief and bereavement with us, and he walks with us, because after all, he understands that death is the enemy. That's why Christ came into the world to destroy the sting of death and hell and sin. He takes it very seriously. And having said that, let me finish with the practical, and then I'll come back to Romans to wrap things up. If you have experienced suicide in your family, and there are children and grandchildren around, or if suicide has impacted someone at work and you know them well enough, make sure you look after the children. Because when you are seven and eight years old and Uncle Tommy has died and has taken his own life, that child will inevitably think that someone else close by is about to die. They will, as adults do, begin to blame themselves. If only I had loved him more. If only I had given him an extra high five. If only I had sent him an email or text him or sent him a message on Facebook. They will be going through the similar thoughts that adults do. And they will fear not only will someone else die, but they fear that they might die or equally who will now look after them. And what children need in the midst of suicide is an adult or a grandparent to get alongside them and love them. They need stability and normalcy. They need someone who is going to be there and talk to them and reassure them and tell them that you won't leave them, that you'll always love them. Take them to the park. Take them to the cinema. Play with them. Bring normal life back as soon as it's appropriate. Don't manufacture something that's false, please. And I suspect you wouldn't do that. But try to bring them back to normalcy as soon as is appropriate. On your way out this morning, or again, if you're watching by television, here at the church, we have a number of resources. We have a resource leaflet that lists national suicide prevention hotlines. We have some recommended reading. We have additional resources. You can pick them up at the table on the way out this morning. Stan Johnson, who looks after congregational care for us as a pastor, will be manning that table. Also on that table, you will have grieving a suicide, help after the aftershock. And finally, when someone talks in terms of, I just want to die, replacing thoughts of suicide with hope. So the practical resources are there. Please stop for a minute, take them home with you. For all of the questions I will be asked when working with an individual or a family as it relates to suicide, the number one question that comes my way again and again and again and again with remarkable consistency is this. Will Uncle Tom Will Francis, will Samantha, will James, will they be in heaven? The number one question. So allow me please 
to answer that question. And please hear me when I say this, and I want to say this as gently as possible. There is a popular misconception that the Scripture teaches that when a person takes a life, that person dies with the stain of sin on their soul and will not go to heaven. My question this morning is this, is that what Scripture teaches? And allow me to say this, there is a world of a difference between popular misconception and gospel truth because what we have right here at the end of Romans 8 lies at the very heart of the gospel. It is fundamental and foundational to the gospel itself, and it's this, that the overall teaching of the Scripture is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth, nothing in all creation, neither powers nor nature. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if you're taking notes this morning, please write this down. The circumstance of the death of an individual never determines their eternal salvation. The circumstance of the death of an individual never determines their salvation. As far as the gospel is concerned, it is how you lived your life that matters, not how you die. Have you got it? I hope you have. Now, let me come back to the popular misconception. Taking of a life is a serious sin. It should never be marginalized or minimized or pretended to be something it is not. It is extremely serious. The individual involved will have to give account to God for their action. It's the same with any sin. But please remember this, that 85 to 91 percent of those who take their life are struggling with mental illness. Do you think God would judge someone for wrestling with cancer? Do you think He would judge someone for wrestling with another kind of disease? Is He only judging those with mental illness? Absolutely not. Never. And we can say not and never because Scripture is clear. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And he goes into great detail. Look at it again. Neither the present nor the future, neither powers nor height nor depth, nor angels nor demon, neither the present nor the future, nor anything in all creation. The answer is no, 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 no. The only thing that determines our eternal salvation is our relationship with Christ. That's the only thing, His love for us, His forgiveness of us, His grace and His mercy bestowed upon us, His outrageous 
outrageous love for us. And we can say amen and amen and amen and amen to Romans chapter 8, because the Scripture teaches it. And allow me to go a little deeper as we wrap things up this morning, and this is what I want you to leave, or to leave with you. When Christ died at Calvary, and His last words on the cross were, it is finished. He didn't say, I have now provided you with an opportunity. He didn't say, it's a possibility. My death is potential. He actually saved His children. All of the sins of eternity past, all of the sins of today, all of the sins of the future were once and for all finally nailed to the cross at Calvary, and He accomplished our salvation forever. It is finished. He didn't do half a job. He didn't save us depending on our circumstance or our mental health. He saved us because He saved us, because He loved us, because He is gracious. It is finished. And please hear me when I say this. He will never, ever, ever abandon you to the emotion of the moment. He will never surrender you to the vagaries of your own sin. He loves you too much for that. And that's why, as people who believe that the best is yet to come, we can say with the Apostle Paul, with countless millions down through the centuries, with countless millions still to come, for we are convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or demons, or the present, or the future, nor any power, height, nor depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Father, for those of us who have felt the sting and the pain and the dreadful sadness of suicide in our own families, thank You for the hope we find in Your Word. Father, we know that this morning our topic has been, to say the least, difficult. We know that some of us are raw and tender and sore at the loss of someone we have known and loved. And yet we leave this morning with our hearts encouraged, our heads held high, because You love us with an everlasting love, and You provide for us a love that will not let us go. Father, thank You for your incredible grace towards us. Bless us, please, as we seek to live in the light of all that you have taught us. And together, the people of God said, Amen. 
Each day, 6,200 children die from hunger. But there's hope thanks to Feed My Starving Children and volunteers like you. Help us turn hunger into hope on April 24th and 25th at First Presbyterian's Grains of Grace Mobile Pack event. Our goal is to pack 275,000 life-saving meals for hungry children around the world. Sign up today or donate at firstpresgreenville.org.